Good morning. It's good to be in the Assembly of the Saints on this Lord's Day. I hope you're as excited to be here as I am. I don't ever feel right if I miss worship. Um, I love to sing the hymns and enter into prayer and uh, hear the Word of God and being preached and in sacrament and all of that's an encouragement to me. So I hope that you've come this way this morning to worship the Lord. And as Jesus tells us in John chapter 4, the Father is seeking those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. And the truth is found in his word, which I want you to consider with me this morning. If you are able, please stand with me as I read the text for this morning from Mark chapter 11, verses 27 through 33. Then they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came to him. And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority to do these things? But Jesus answered and said to them, I also will ask you one question, then answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? Answer me. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men, they feared the people. For all counted John to have been a prophet indeed. And so they answered and said to Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus answered and said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Thank you. You may be seated. This is the word of the Lord. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. If you will, bow your heads with me for a word of prayer. Our Father, we thank you for what you have revealed from heaven. We know, O oh Lord, that we can understand that you have created all things and that in looking at those things, we know you exist. We can understand many things, but we cannot understand your purpose and plan of salvation and what you are doing in the world in that regard unless you've revealed it. And you have, and we have it here in the Bible. How grateful we are for that. May the Spirit of God guide us and teach us the truth that is here. Father, I ask this in the name of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. God has always had a plan for the salvation of sinners. And Jesus Christ has always been at the very center. From the beginning of Scripture to the end, the promise of salvation in Christ has been carefully unveiled. That's really the whole idea of, of revealing. It is unveiled. It is there 
It is truth that exists, but we didn't know it. God has revealed it. He has unveiled it to us. And everything that God has revealed, everything, centers on His Son, Jesus Christ. He's at the heart of the Heavenly Father's goal to redeem, redeem for Himself a people to worship Him and, as I mentioned earlier, to worship in spirit and in truth. Now, in the Bible, there's a clear line of authority. It runs from the Old Testament all the way through the New Testament. That authority is God's. It is His Word. He will do all that He says. He declares His redemptive purpose in His Word. He assures us that He will accomplish it. He proclaims that it is accomplished. And neither angels nor men can alter that. It doesn't matter how much we resist it. It doesn't matter how much we may be ignorant of it. It will not change. God will not alter his word. As the Lord makes clear through the prophet Isaiah... So shall my word be that goes out of my mouth. It shall not return to me empty. But it shall accomplish that which I purpose. It shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Sounds certain to me. Now Isaiah conveyed God's word regarding his righteous Servant, You may remember that from Isaiah somewhere around chapter 40 all the way through a portion at least of chapter 55. God begins to talk to his people and build to the point of re revealing the servant, the suffering servant who would come. And Isaiah is conveying God's word regarding that righteous servant. The one who would accomplish redemption. Mark's gospel confirms our Lord Jesus as this servant. That's really a, a focal point for Mark. Jesus is coming to the world and he is, as we see in this gospel, instantly busy. He's doing what the Father sent him to do. And so when we read Mark, it's sort of fast-paced and to the point. Mark says, this is the servant. This is the one that has come to do the will of God. And in doing that will of God, it will lead him even to the cross. And having suffered your death and mine on that cross, then God would raise him from the dead so that all who place their faith in him are in Christ. And his life is our life, his death our death, his resurrection ours. And so Mark says that Jesus is the servant of God who came and accomplished all of that. Jesus is this servant, and Mark emphasizes Jesus' 
authority as that servant. It's seen often in his supernatural power over demons and disease and death. However, along with the miraculous, Jesus exercises authority in his interaction with the Jewish religious leaders of his day. And he does so concerning what God means by what he's revealed. They had scripture. Paul says in Romans 4 and 5, it was to the Israelites, Paul's own kinsmen, that God had given the scripture, the, the covenants, the promises, the forefathers, and yes, Christ himself. All of these things, all the revelation of God, all the working of God in the world, God raised up a nation and worked through them to point to the servant. So the Jewish leaders believed and they taught that God's redemptive plan centered in and around them as a nation, them as descendants of Abraham, the, the ethnic Israel only. They did not regard anyone else outside of the covenant people as ever having really hope of coming into the kingdom. They deserved to be there. Everyone else did not. Maybe some might convert, but that wasn't really a great effort on their part to spread the truth of the kingdom of God. Jesus declared himself, however, to be the fulfillment of God's salvation promise as revealed to the world through Israel. That was the correct perspective, you understand. Israel said, no, it's all about us. Jesus said, no, it's all about me. You'll remember at one point he said to the Jews, he said, you search the scriptures and in them you seek to find eternal life, but these are they which speak of me. They regarded God's servant as a king of an earthly kingdom. That kingdom, they believe, tied to the covenant God made with Moses. But Jesus came as the king of heaven. Jesus came securing entrance by the promised New Testament, or New Covenant, rather, sealed in his own blood. We'll remember that covenant, as Brother Stan made reference to earlier. We'll remember what Christ has done for us, sealing that new covenant in his own blood. And we will be encouraged by it, I trust. But Jesus had come as a descendant of Abraham. He understood the, the Jewish background. He understood what they were doing in their worship. He knew what they were thinking about the covenant of Moses. He knew where the religious leaders were in their thinking. And here he was among his own people, proclaiming a kingdom contrary to what the religious leaders taught. Now that's a problem. 
Jesus did not fit their mold for one qualified to lead. He was an itinerant rabbi, a teacher. He didn't come from their schools. He was not sanctioned by the religious elites. And they often, as Jesus' ministry progressed, butted heads, if you will. Who really had the authority to declare the things of God? And who was Jesus after all to declare their temple worship to be offensive to God so much so that he had to cleanse it? You'll remember the last time I had the privilege of sharing the scripture with you, looking back in chapter 11, Jesus had cleansed the temple. And he had told them that they had made his father's house, which was to be a house of prayer, a place of worship of the true and living God, they had made it a den of robbers, bringing their wares through the court of the Gentiles, passing through as if the Gentiles who were there to worship mattered not, that God wasn't concerned with you. It's only about the Jewish people. Who was Jesus to do that kind of thing? and insist that Gentiles would be included in God's redemptive plan. That wasn't the Judaism over which the chief priests and the scribes and the elders exercised authority. But that's where we find ourselves. Here as we come to Mark chapter 11 in these last verses. It should come as no surprise to us. It should be very clear to us that God's servant from heaven comes with the full authority of heaven. Should we have any question in our minds, Mark communicates plainly that the truth about the kingdom of God rests only in Christ. It was not up for interpretation by the Jewish leaders or reinterpretation. And we need to listen to the Lord Jesus when he talks about how it is that God saves sinners and brings them to himself and how we are to come to God in worship. Well, Christ has the authority to tell us that. Mark states that plainly. And as we find here, even though the Jewish leaders challenge Christ, heaven has already powerfully confirmed Jesus' authority. And that's what I want us to consider, the servant's authority. And I want you to look first in verses 27 and 28 with me, because here's where he receives a challenge by the Jews. They challenge his authority. Really, Jesus is going to challenge theirs, as we'll see, but here they challenge his authority. Now, his earthly ministry, you'll remember, has drawn to a close. It is, he's really just focused on the cross now and spending these last days primarily privately teaching the disciples, preparing them for his coming death. 
reminding them of what he had told them often, that he would be handed over after he was betrayed and he would be beaten and treated shamefully and he would suffer and be crucified, but the third day he would rise again. But everything else, all that he was doing as he traveled through Israel for these more than three years now, that's come to a close and he's really stopped proclaiming things publicly quite so much, except in the temple where he comes on these days as he's in Jerusalem for the Passover. But he's come there to face the cross. And the disciples enter the city daily and they are in and they are around the temple with the Lord and they return to Bethany in the evenings. You'll remember to lodge with friends, probably Lazarus and Mary and Martha. But then they would return every morning and they would go to the temple. And this passage notes that their return, they return once again to the temple. Once again, it says, to Jerusalem. They come back into the city. They come back to the temple. This perhaps is day four of what we call the Passion Week. As the Lord has entered Jerusalem uh, on what we refer to as Palm Sunday. And he's going out and coming in and he is in the temple area. The place he had just cleansed. And the Jewish leaders, which may have in all likelihood included the high priest and the temp captain of the temple guard, maybe, maybe some others, but they were there to challenge Jesus. They had sort of shaken off uh, the shock of Jesus cleansing the temple. And they could do nothing but stand there speechless as he had done it. But now they approach him. They've gathered their forces, these religious leaders. As far as they were concerned, this was their territory. I imagine they stood tall and puffed out their chest and put on their most official robes and talked in their most stern voice. Who are you? Jesus. Now this was the inevitable place of conflict. It is the place that God had established for worship through the Mosaic Covenant. But as we know from the New Testament, it was all a foreshadowing of Christ and of true worship and of true access to God and Pastor John has been teaching us about that as we've gone through the book of Hebrews. But Jesus is here walking in the temple, still drawing attention to himself, teaching about the kingdom, and that contradicted their teaching. Well, you can't have two authorities, not two ultimate authorities on the same subject, when it comes to eternal life. Christ is a serious threat to their power. They have already been seeking a way to destroy him. Back in chapter 11, verse 18, it tells us plainly, they were plotting together how they might destroy him. 
It's one thing for him to be traversing up and down the countryside, going from city to city and village to village and proclaiming his teaching. It's another thing to now come with a very determined face to the temple and to cleanse it yet again, for he had done that already at the beginning of his ministry, but this was now backed by all his teaching and all his ministry of the past three years, and they were afraid. Quite often you'll find the Jewish leaders discussing among themselves, what in the world are we going to do about this guy? I mean, he's performing miracles, we can't deny that. He's teaching with great authority. People are flocking to him everywhere. No matter how much we try to catch him in, a, in his words, we can't do it. He refutes us every time. He embarrasses us every time. We've got to do something. But coming to the temple and saying, this is not right, this is unclean, you need to worship God the right way, well, that is a step too far at least for them. And so the tension is high. They feel compelled to challenge his public teaching and to challenge him publicly in order that they might save face. I think you see the picture. And so they demand to know by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? How dare you? I mean, think about it. That would be like someone who's never been to this church before waltzing in here and telling us, you're doing it all wrong. You should listen to me. I don't think we would like that very much. Maybe we should listen and consider are we doing something offensive to the Lord according to his word, but, you know, they weren't really concerned with the word of God as they should have been. Why are you doing this? Who gave you the right to do this? That's, that's the idea, the power or the right. That's the idea behind the word authority here. Who gave that to you? To make such statements as you have. It's, is it your own authority or did it come from God in other words? Now... They're laying a trap. They really want him, as they've always been trying to do, to say something publicly that would really be blasphemous against God. That's the way of false religion, isn't it? They don't care about truth, but they're glad when Christians who speak the truth somehow get tripped up in their words or don't communicate something clearly or do something that though they did not mean for it to be uh, done that way or to be perceived that way, it's some appearance of evil and they, they really pounce on that. You've had that happen to you, I'm sure, if you've been telling people about Christ. Well, they're hoping that's what happens to Jesus. This your authority... Or did God give this to you? Now, they don't really believe he came from God. They'll accuse Jesus of blasphemy no matter how he answers the question. But what they don't realize is he's about to turn the question back on them. 
This is a, a radical thing that Jesus had done coming into the temple. Actually, his whole ministry was radical. There was nothing about Jesus' ministry that mirrored that of the religious leaders, the other rabbis. Jesus taught with authority. When he spoke, people thought, wow, he's, that's right. And he, he knew the scripture, and he could recall what the scripture said almost effortlessly and weave that into his teaching and pull together the things around them to help them understand and make those truths of the kingdom clear for those who had ears to hear. But coming into the temple, challenging the religious leaders, that was radical. And by his words and actions, he was saying that true access to God comes by a way other than your practice of worship here in the temple. It was established for the right reasons, but you've perverted it. So Jesus is, his, his authority is questioned. But now I want you to look at what Mark does here in verses 29 through 33. Though the religious authorities questioned Jesus, Mark says there was no reason for them to do so. If they really believed the scripture, if they really believed what God had revealed from heaven... And as he had so often done, delivering that message through prophets, if they really believed that, then they really should have believed John the Baptist, whom everyone believed at that point was truly a prophet, a prophet indeed, said Mark. And so with his superior debating skills, if you know anything about debating, if you like to debate yourself, or you like you yourself like to debate others, you can see what Jesus is doing. He's, he's turning it back on them. He's, he's answering their question only if they answer first, as he indicates in verse 29. He knows his question is one they don't wish to answer out loud because it exposes their rejection of the authoritative word of God delivered by John the Baptist. What was that word? Well, it came not only in John's command to repent, but it came also in the baptism he called the Jews to receive. Baptism, as we know, the New Testament baptism has a great symbolic significance. But it's accompanied by something. Faith. John says this baptism needs to be accompanied. This baptism that I am baptizing you Jewish people with in the Jordan River. It needs to be accompanied with repentance. You need to be made clean. And as Mark said back in chapter 1. It was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. In other words, 
Their washing in the waters of the Jordan was a symbol of their need to turn from sin to the only one who could cleanse them of that sin. And so even when our Lord Jesus says, repent and believe the gospel, what he is saying is, see yourself the sinner you are and look to me as the Savior I am. And that goes on from the moment you first repent and believe all the way through the end of your life, if you are a Christian. If it was genuine repentance, if it is genuine faith, then it will truly continue. But John's coming to the Jews and he's saying, you need a Savior. You are sinners. You are not these self-righteous people that your Jewish leaders are telling you that you are. Just because you're a descendant of Abraham. As John will go on to tell them in Matthew's gospel, don't think for a moment, you brood of vipers, you snakes who've come out for this repentance. Don't think for a moment that you're going to enter the kingdom just because you're descendants of Abraham. God can make descendants of Abraham out of these rocks. That has nothing to do with it. You need to come and you need to repent and you need to look to the one I'm pointing to that has arrived and is about to come on the public scene. And that one is Christ, Jesus the Lord. It was a confession that while Moses delivered the law and the law condemned them, that covenant God made at Sinai did not provide not one bit of grace. It brought law. It said, this is what you must do or you will die. And they vowed, oh, we will do it. And God said, no, you won't. And they proved that time and again, right up until Jesus comes to the temple and is facing the cross. And John's saying, this is what you should have learned, and this is who you should have been looking for. The law told you you were a sinner, and God is holy, and you need a Savior. You need to turn from your sin. You need to acknowledge that you are a sinful person, and you need to look to the promised servant that God has foretold and who has come. And so salvation could only come through the servant who kept the law from the heart. You and I never kept the law from the heart without fail. The Lord Jesus Christ has. You and I cannot suffer for our own sin and then live unto God. But Jesus Christ could take your sin upon himself, bear it there on the cross of Calvary, and satisfy the wrath of God forever. Because your sin against an eternal God could be borne on the shoulders, as it were, of the eternal Son of God. He could endure the eternal wrath of God, even in those moments on the cross. 
The law paved the way for repentance, but it could not deliver forgiveness. And so John the Baptist had come to Israel. He was that voice Isaiah spoke of in chapter 40 of that prophecy. The one crying in the wilderness, make straight the path of the Lord. He was the Lord Jesus Christ herald. He went before him. He announced his arrival. This servant that God has promised has come. This messenger would tell of Christ who leads his people out of sin. Moses led the people in the exodus out of Egypt, but Christ would truly lead all people out of sin. Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of Isaiah chapters 40 through 55. He is the righteous servant the Jews should have expected that John came to herald. Jesus simply demands to know, was John's baptism from God or from men? What do you say? Did it come from heaven or did people come up with it on their own? And then, as only... Mark indicates the Lord Jesus finished that statement with the answer me. See the tables turned in one moment. That's the great debater that Christ is. In him is all the wisdom and knowledge, says scripture. Christ could deal with these religious leaders and Rather than being caught in some blasphemous statement, which was not possible, Jesus could turn the tide on them, as it were, and cause them to stumble and be caught in their own words. Was it from heaven or from men? If they agree that John's baptism was from heaven, well, we're told that Jesus... As they talk amongst themselves, they knew Jesus would say, well, then why didn't you believe John? If you're really here with the true way to God and the true worship of God, and you receive this through prophets from God, and John is clearly a prophet by the things that he has said and he has done, why did you not believe him when he said that I am the servant? I am the Lord. Why didn't you believe John? But if they deny that John was really a prophet, well, that just said the same thing, right? And the people who really counted John to be a prophet, well, the scribes and Pharisees were afraid of the crowds. So they refused to answer. We don't know. And Jesus does exactly what he said he would do. You don't answer my question, I won't answer yours. I won't tell you by what authority I do these things. Why? Well, what's implied here? You don't 
accept that authority. You don't believe that authority. My point is proven, says the Lord. And so where does that leave us? When we see Jesus with this encou- having this encounter with the religious leaders, we see this exchange and we understand a little more about it. Where does that leave us? Well, Mark is plainly saying that we can have absolute confidence in everything that Jesus says about our salvation. We don't look to anything outside of Christ. We have confidence in Him. He has the authority to declare Himself as God's servant, sent to redeem sinners, to call us to repent and to place our faith all our hope for eternity in Him. Have you done that? Do you have that confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you believe what John the Baptist said, what all the other prophets said, what the Scripture declares with authority that there was one coming and He has come? And it is this Jesus? Well, the writer of Hebrews begins his letter with such an affirmation, if you will, of who Christ is. I just want to read that for you. The first four verses, if you will. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us through his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, When he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than even the angels. And then he proceeds to explain how Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, is superior to those angels, is superior to Moses, is superior to the old covenant in every way. So that you can trust him completely. Have you done that? If you're here this morning and you say, yes, I am a Christian. Ask yourself, what does that mean? Did you repent? Are you repentant? Did you place your faith in Christ? Is your faith still in Christ? Are you looking to something outside of Christ or in addition to Christ or to your own authority to determine what is right and what is wrong? And this is how God should judge me based on the fact that I did this and I didn't do that and I'm not as bad as this person and so on. What authority are you looking to? What do you base, what authority do you base your Christianity on this morning? If it's not Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone, you have no ground on which to stand. You have no hope on which to stand. 
Your faith is not in anything secure. And anyone claiming otherwise has a false hope no matter what their religious beliefs are. They deny the true gospel delivered by Christ to his church. Listen to what Paul the Apostle says, who often had to remind people of the authority he had as an apostle. It wasn't based in who he was personally. It was based in the authority given to him by Christ, in the word given to him by Christ. And hear what Paul says about false gospels, beginning in verse 6 of chapter 1. I marvel that you're turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. In other words, there really isn't anything else. You may think there is. Someone may tell you that there is, but there's only one gospel. It comes to us through Scripture. And it's made clear to the church through the Lord Jesus' apostles whom he appointed. All our confession as Christians, all the truth we confess about Christ is based on that. And Paul says, if you're believing anything else, it's a false gospel. And even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. Let God turn his back on that person. They have perverted the truth. And as we've said before, Paul goes on to say, Now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. For, I do, for do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I still pleased men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. Wow. Very authoritative. I think I believe Paul. No, I don't think. I know I believe Paul. This is a problem within the church today. People denying the true gospel, saying they're preaching the gospel to you, but they're really denying it. Often it's done very subtly. It's not just Christ and him crucified. It's not that God is holy and you are a sinner completely incapable of anything that would earn your salvation. But God sent his servant, his son, and he lived the righteous life you failed to live. And he did it from the heart. And he bore your sins. Your, the, the punishment for your transgression, he bore on the tree of Calvary, on the cross of Calvary. And then he rose again from the dead because death could not hold the righteous servant. And God says, if you will 
Know that you're a sinner and look to Christ in faith. I will look at you as you are united to him. And I will forgive you. The righteousness you need I have provided in my son. The death you deserved I have provided in my son. The life that you need I have provided in my son. If any church you are ever in, any preacher you ever listen to, ever says anything other than that beautiful, pure truth of the gospel, they are lying. No matter how well-intentioned they are, no matter how much they believe it themselves. This is serious stuff. You cannot trifle with the authority of Scripture. But what do you say about Jesus Christ's authority? That's the question to each one of us this morning. Is he the servant from heaven sent to save sinners? You may not understand a whole lot about Christ. There's so much that all of us are learning over and over again. As we go through scripture, privately and together. But God doesn't ask you to understand all the details of scripture. He commands you to repent and believe the gospel. But you can't really believe in something that you don't trust. But if it comes from heaven with authority, you can trust it. And so if Christ's authority is from God, then do you believe it? If it's from man, well, if that's what you believe, why are you here? Why even call yourself a Christian? Why come and go through the religious motions and sing the hymns and give of your offering and sit through the sermons and partake of the communion? Why do you do that? If you don't really believe what God has revealed in Scripture and that the fullness of all that revelation is in the person of Christ, what's the point? Which begs the question, how can anyone claim to be a Christian or stand up and preach from, so, supposedly preach from Scripture and call that the Word of God if they don't really believe it, if they question it, if they do not think that it is infallible? But if you know you're a sinner before a holy God, and you see Christ, the only Savior of men, then trust in this servant from heaven and cling to him in repentance and faith. And the church is the place where the gospel of Jesus Christ is to be proclaimed constantly 
with authority and with the authority of Jesus Christ himself. That we may, with absolute confidence in its power to save us, may embrace it by faith. Paul says in Romans 1, the gospel is the power of God for salvation for all who believe it. For the Jew, for the Gentile, for all. And with an absolute confidence in Christ to save you from the uttermost, I hope you have come to him in faith. I hope you will come if you have not. And this morning now as we are going to observe the Lord's Supper, I want you to understand what the symbolism means and what's actually taking place. The bread that we eat represents Christ and his body, his sinless life, if you will, his humanity, sinless humanity, lived for us. And the juice, the fruit of the vine, the wine. When we partake of that, Jesus said, that represents my blood, blood that sealed that new covenant. And this, as Pastor often tells us, is a renewal of the covenant. Every time we come, every time we partake of this, we are looking to Christ who is saying, this is what I have done for you. And Christ is looking to us and saying, or we are looking to Christ and saying, yes, Lord, we believe that. And so I want you to keep that in mind as we proceed with our worship as is our custom now each Lord's Day to observe the communion. But first I want you to bow your heads with me in a word of prayer. Oh Father, how thankful we are to you for this your word revealed so clearly. Though it may be poorly communicated, we know it will not return to you void. It does not come back to you empty. It accomplishes what you have sent it to do. And that is to draw sinners to the Lord Jesus Christ that they may be redeemed. Lord, how much of a privilege it is to share the truth with your people. I pray you will help us take to heart the things that you have declared with authority in your word. And our Lord Jesus, we thank you that you came with such great authority and yet with such great compassion and that you would be willing to give your life a ransom for our souls. You came not to be served the first time, but to serve and to give your life that ransom for us. That you have declared and that we believe and now, Lord, I pray for everyone here, if any do not know Christ, that you will open their hearts to believe the gospel, that they may be saved. But for those who have believed, Lord, as we gather around the table of communion, that we may be drawn into this fellowship with you as you are very much in our presence by your spirit. And we commune with you and with one another remembering what you have done for us until you come again. This we pray, Father, in the name 
of the Son. Amen.